Amen. I thought some of us might want to do that long held out, Amen. Maybe someday we'll be good enough for that. He's not even responding. He's just trying to get out to where the teens are. <clears throat> Nothing but a shrug. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 125 tonight. Continue in our Sunday in the Psalms. I will make an announcement and it will embarrass Min Young, but uh, there is still room on the meal train uh, if you'd like to put in with that. Jessica gave me a post-it note and put it in my Bible. And somewhere between my office and Edward, it was Elgano. I don't even know where it went. If you find it on the floor, it's very well written. It's in Jessica's neat handwriting. Uh, and it says, we have spaces on the meal train if you would like to for Min Young and Jamie. Probably more for Jamie, right, Min Young? Yeah, uh, you're going to be occupied this week, so pray for her to the finish line. Psalm 125 is where we are. <clears throat> we'll read these five verses and look at this third psalm in the triad of this second set. We looked last week at the trouble and the trust, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But we come to a psalm of degrees, or a song of degrees, telling us about victory, or the triumph, the rest that is ours, because we trusted in God. The Bible says, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about His people from henceforth even forever. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside under their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. But peace shall be upon Israel. Father, help us tonight. As we in our study continue to look at these ever-increasing songs of degrees, help us as we understand it this evening, trying to keep it within a particular context, but also knowing that there's great rejoicing in this psalm. Sometimes we can't see it, but my responsibility tonight is to illuminate the truth in it so that we can come to this psalm and know that when we draw our comfort from you, there's great rejoicing in our heart. Bless us this evening, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The second triad of the Songs of Degrees, we noted, deals with contempt that others have for us as we place our trust in Almighty God. We noted last Sunday that in Psalm 123, the contempt from the enemy is external, fraternal, and internal. There is a, an enemy from without that is certainly holding us in contempt and certainly hating us all along the way. It wasn't just Rabshakeh, who was the captain of the host of the Assyrians in Hezekiah's day, who stood outside the gates and openly mocked God and the people of God. But in our own lives, we noted, there is certainly trouble that comes. There are external components of contempt, but we noted there are also fraternal it seems like those that hate God just seem to compound. Enemies finding enemies because they all hate God and His people. But then we noted, he says, our soul in chapter 123 is exceedingly filled with the scorning. It is within our soul 
that we are filled up with contempt. Sometimes we even internalize the external contempt and we begin to hate or loathe ourselves even though we have no cause to. And that is the tool of the devil to trap and to tear down those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hezekiah was enduring such contempt in Jerusalem. We find then, thankfully, that Hezekiah knew and used a psalm of David perfectly in Psalm 124. And in that, he took an adaptation of David's psalm, calling forth the comfort of the eternal one, we said. The contempt from the enemy is met with trust in God, the Lord, Yahweh, the eternal one. So tonight, we turn from the trust to what... Victory over contempt looks like. We look at triumph. What does it look like to have victory over those who hold you in hateful, spiteful contempt? And some of us would think, well, it's because we, or it, it looks like this. When I can come and look at someone and say, well, ha, 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 I got victory over you. May I suggest to you that that is equal contempt and that is not victory. We don't find that in this psalm. Now, we do find that he calls upon God to act, and God does act. But victory over those that hate us is not equally hating them in return. We're not called, as followers of God, to hate them. In fact, in the New Testament, we are called to help them. We're to love our enemies and to do good to those that despitefully use you, those that would persecute us. So what are the marks and what are the manifestations of being content, though we are held in contempt by the godless of this world? According to the psalmist, triumph comes first in our outlines through God's enabling care. What a comfort. God cares for you. That's an encouragement. The psalmist is saying here, not what they might do to me, but he's talking about in this psalm what God will do for me. Listen, it doesn't matter how much they hate us if we know how much he loves us. That counters any of the hatred, any of the contempt, any of the reviling that any of us could experience. The conversation in verses 1, 2, and 3 is of Mount Zion is of mountains that surround Jerusalem and of the mounting evidence that God has chosen to protect His own. And I don't think just physically here, but also spiritually and emotionally. God's enabling care is the heart of verses 1, 2, and 3. Again, if I trust in God in the midst of my trouble, we will triumph. That's what we learned over the deceitful tongue in the first three of these songs of degrees. And what we're finding now is that there is victory for us if we will trust God in the midst of any hatred directed at us. May I suggest to us, We should learn tonight's message well, because there's a lot of hate, I think, that is coming our way in these United States of America as we continue to stand for what is right and true from the Word of God. But it doesn't mean that we're to hate them in return. So what are the marks then? What are the manifestations? What are the helps that we find in God's enabling care. What is it that the psalmist points to in this particular psalm? In verse number one, he notes this, in letter A in our outlines, that God 
is our stability. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. Mount Zion, the writer tells us, is immovable. It cannot be removed. The name Mount Zion appears often in scriptures. So I'll pause tonight since it's a Sunday night and everyone else is out in Sunday school class and we kind of treat it this way. I'll ask you, what do you think Mount Zion or the word Zion means? I don't know. It's what we came to ask you. What does Zion mean? We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Where were you marching to? Heaven. That's what that song is teaching. Okay, good. A holy place. Okay. Is Mount Zion in the Himalayas? Let's, let's, okay, good. Let's do some basic fact-finding here, okay? <clears throat> what continent is it on? Technically, the Asian continent as it comes up to the Mediterranean Sea, right? So, Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. Mount Zion is the highest peak or imminent rise in the city of Jerusalem. That is actually Mount Zion. And I'm going to tell you something. I've pastored for 15 and a half years, and it wasn't until I started studying these Psalms last year that I ever stopped to think, yeah, where is Mount Zion in in Jerusalem? How many have been to Jerusalem? Raise your hand. Do you go to Mount Zion? Does it have a placard? I've never been. Has it got a placard that says, here ye stand upon ye old Mount Zion? No, it doesn't? Okay. I would imagine most of the Jews of their day would be walking around the city of Jerusalem and then when they go over the pinnacle peak or the highest point, which is Mount Zion, they wouldn't even know they were there. By the way, isn't that true for so many of us in our Christian life? If Mount Zion is a spiritual connotation and if it has a physical manifestation, then there's a lot of times in our spiritual life we are walking on Mount Zion and we don't even know it. Oh, but you should know if you're on Mount Zion, according to this psalmist. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed. The name Mount Zion, as I said, appears in Scripture. And its usage represents one of three intentions by God, who is the author of Scripture. I put these in your notes. Now, Maybe some of you grammarians and wordniks might know what prosaically means, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But I have found that the word is used, because I needed three Ps, it is used prosaically, prophetically, and poetically. And you might add a fourth that I'm going to use it pathetically tonight, but I think I'll use it accurately, okay? Zion is used prosaically. All that word means prosaically, it's common, right? It's just common prose, P-R-O-S-E, that we might see in reading, right? It's nothing special. It's not a poem. It's not a novel. It doesn't have a name. So in other words, there is a very common use for the name Zion in the Scriptures when God the author uses it through His human instruments. 
It is the name literally of the old Jebusite stronghold in Jerusalem. Joshua, when he entered into the land, did not go up against them as he came to Jericho and did not overthrow them ultimately, though there was periods of time where Jerusalem was conquered. Conquered The Jebusites ultimately held that city all the way until we get to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 5, who takes the city for his own stronghold. The Jebusites themselves considered the city, or the mount, to be invincible, and they boasted against David, saying that they could take their blind and their lame, and they could hold Mount Zion against any enemy. That is an amazing thought. It was Joab, through his resourcefulness and through his courageous actions, who ultimately won the city, which led to David making Joab his essential commander-in-chief, the leader of his military forces. Called Zion, the name Zion itself actually means the castle. That's what it means, the fortress. So when you read the other Psalms and you see that God is my high tower and my fortress, they are making references in those Psalms to the idea of something being safe and secure, something that is stable, that's irremovable. It is there forever. God is our fortress. He is our castle. When God talks about Zion, the fort, the castle, He often relates it, connects it to the city of David. It was a mount situated on the southwest rise. Uh, the actual right geographical term or, or geological term, it's called an eminence. It means it has a bit of a heaving up of the land in that area. It's on the southwest rise of Jerusalem's mount. David made this Mount Zion and Jerusalem his home and the heart of his political empire. So when the writer is talking about it cannot be moved, he's talking about it here very prosaically, meaning very much in a common understanding that everybody in Israel would get. And it is the actual mount in the actual city in an actual place. You'd say, why are you making a big deal out of this? Because there's lessons in this. Zion also in the scripture is used prophetically, we noted. And that means it, uh, in the prophetic sense, it would depict the seed of Christ's rule when he comes in his millennial kingdom. He will rule, the Bible tells us, over and again in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Revelation, that he will rule from Mount Zion. Is he literally just going to stand on that one spot on the rise on the southwest side and rule from there? And the answer is, he might. I don't know. You don't know. But I think it's much more of a prophetic sense, meaning it's from that location. It speaks to that in prophecy. Here's a use of it in Isaiah 2 and in verse 3. And many people shall go and, and say, Come ye, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah's prophecy here describes what kind of government authority will come from that blessed prophetical Zion. Is that what the writer is talking about? I don't think so. However, however, if it's Hezekiah, which I think it is for these 15 Psalms, and Isaiah is his prophet and he's giving this information, it is very possible that he's also talking about the fact that God's kingdom, God's authority will never be changed. 
Finally, there's Zion being used poetically. Zion used poetically is how our hymn writers often reference it. To describe heaven and the hope that the New Testament believer has because of Jesus Christ. Here's a use of it that you would recognize. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22, it is a very long sentence of three verses, but please pay attention to the reference to Zion, Zion in the New Testament. The writer says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. It is set in this verse in contrast with Mount Sinai. These two mountains, Zion and Sinai, are contrasted in the New Testament to emphasize the difference between the hope of the Old Testament believer and the hope of the New Testament believer. The stability of God's Old Testament people hinged upon what? The law. The hope and stability of a New Testament believer hinges upon whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. We find then that Hezekiah's thoughts were stabilized with Rabshakeh and the Assyrians attacking him with the assault of hatred and contempt coming his way. His thinking, his life, his mannerisms, his motions, they were all stabilized because he focused on that which is eternal and that which cannot be moved. And that is God's very word, God's very presence, God's omnipotent power. We stabilized thinking prosaically, prophetically, and yes, I believe even possibly poetically, though he does not know Hezekiah or did not know what we know today in the New Testament. He says, those who trust in the Lord shall be like that, says our singer here. They will be established. That is the enabling care of our great God. When we trust in Him, He starts the triumph by reminding us of the trust. When you trust in Him, your life will become very stable. So you must ask yourself, if you're living from hatred to hatred or hurt to hurt, if you're living from contempt to contempt and your life is not stable, why? It's because you're not trusting in the Lord as you ought to trust. But they can't do that to us. They can't do that in this country. Can I suggest to you, mankind and their sinfulness can do anything they want in any country. Not my America. Well, Jesus didn't die for America. He loves us, and I think we've been a nation blessed by God. But as a Christian, we have to get our focus sometimes off of the nationalist pride that swells up within each of us, including your pastor, And get our focus upon Almighty God, and that is this. If you want to be stable, even when your country is going crazy and corrupt, come back to Mount Zion. And trust in the God of Mount Zion. We often in this country are spoiled. Chinese Christians do not have the privilege that we have. Many of the Christians in Arabic nations do not have the privileges that we have, and so... While I'm saying it carefully, not with contempt tonight, I'll say it bluntly. 
Crimea River about all the things we've lost. It pains my heart. But in the end of the day, we trust in the living God, the God of Mount Zion, not the God of our Constitution even, because it can be ripped to shreds as we are watching it done seemingly day by day. Next we find in verse 2, God is our security. You say, well, that comes with stability. Well, it's a little bit different. He's not in verses 1 and 2 necessarily differentiating, but there is a difference between a singular mount and a series of mountains. I mean, even we Kentuckians can recognize that, right? That's a mountain, and these are mountains, right? That's what he says in verses 1 and 2. That's what we are. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, this is no longer about Mount Zion. These are the things that God has out and around us, encircling and protecting us. The hills around the city were impenetrable. If Mount Zion itself was irremovable, it could not be moved, then the mountains around the city made it nearly impenetrable. It made it such a wonderful place to keep protected. The only access to the city of Jerusalem, with little to no obstruction, came from the north. There were literally mountains on every other side, or are, it's not like they've gone anywhere, on every other side of Jerusalem. It's only from the north that one might be able to attack. By the way, that's where the Assyrians had come from. So it was in Hezekiah's day that attacks would come from the north. The mountains reminded Hezekiah of the security and the safety that he had in trusting God. No level of contempt can remove or refute the true security that God and God alone can give you. There's no amount of hatred for what you believe. There's no amount of despising of your beliefs that will move or change the nature of God himself. These mountains were not Jerusalem's true defense. But what the writer is doing in pinning this song is he's reminding them of what they could physically see so that they could spiritually and emotionally know. Any determined army could surmount those mountains. They could overcome those obstacles. And Rabshakeh had done that. But now he and his contempt, when the writer is writing 125, they fled. Because it wasn't sustainable. It was too hard. And there was trouble back home. We read that in the very first message when we introduced these songs of degrees. Trouble back home drew him away. So his hatred was gone. And the ramparts could be rebuilt. These mountains speak as a symbol of safety and security for Hezekiah, but they speak to the security that God gives to each of us. Those that love me, we're told in the New Testament, shall suffer persecution. But we're also told in those passages of Scripture that the suffering of tribulation, trials, and persecution redound to our account by building our faith so that we can glorify God. Ultimately, our souls are secure. John 10, 28 and 29, no man shall pluck you out of my father's hands. 29, no man shall pluck you out of my hand. Two divine hands secure you. It doesn't matter how much someone hates you. John Phillips in his commentary says this of these mountains in verse number two. He says their encircling ramparts depicted God's embracing arms. I thought, boy, that's a good way to say it. They could look and they could realize the only way is to, to get out of the city or to go without obstruction is north. That's a good picture as well. 
Only up to God is where I can go to help. But everywhere else are His arms surrounding me in protection. To get at Jerusalem, Philip said, an enemy had to get past those mountains. So we might say they serve to remind us when the hurtful and hateful words are thrown at us, when the enemy attacks us, when they do evil against us, the enemy must first get past God. There's a great story in the Bible, and it's the story of Job. And it shows the picture of the permission that God gives inside of His perfect will of God. Uh, y'all can just turn them off in the back. Uh, it, we've had some issues with them. That's kind of how my brain looks sometimes. It just bends like a wheel. Never finding resolution. If it stays up, great. If it doesn't, y'all can just kill them from the back, Scott. Give it one more chance. Oh, okay. Well, come on up here and turn off. Scott is the most humble and shy guy I ever know. And he's one of the hardest workers. But when tech goes wrong, it, he's like, oh, why did it do that? All right, there we go. We're good. These mountains serve to remind us that God is there to protect us. There is no enemy that can overcome God's security whether they are human or satanic. And make no mistake, both are hell-bent on destroying us. They both have great contempt for us. I once heard a preacher say this, Satan doesn't hate you until you get saved. That's true. Once we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it is then that Peter says he is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. God's enabling care is our stability. It is our security, but let us see in our notes, it is our sanity. Stability is more of an emotional thing. Sanity is more of a processing thing. How do I think? You can be sane in an insane world. And verse 3 is the answer to that. Because what is the question that every Christian asks when either hate or contempt or opposition or persecution rests upon us? It's, why is this happening to me and not to the wicked? That's our question. It's often the first one that jumps into our mind. And often as a pastor, what I have to answer in the counseling. Why is this happening to us? We're the good guys, someone might say. Well, the psalmist gives us hope in our triumph. He says, For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot or the whole of the righteous, lest the righteous put forth their hands unto iniquity. I put in your notes this little statement. The mindset here is this. If God doesn't fix it, then I will. You ever thought that way? (laughs) We've all been there, haven't we? All right, God. I'm going to give you two more days. And if you don't fix it, I'm going to fix it. This is not going to stand. And the psalmist here says, oh, oh, don't think that way. Don't, don't, don't. Keep, keep your sanity. Be sane. Be cool, man. Calm down. God's in control. That is his enabling care. The rod of the wicked shall not rest. The word rest here means to settle forever or permanently. That is not to say that there's not going to be seasons of difficulty where there's going to be seasons of persecution, 
But again, as I've said many times in my preaching, I always like to keep the perspective when we're talking about eternal things and living in a temporal world. We have eternal life. And so the difficulties that we have to suffer for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 80 years or 130 years or however long each of us lives, our Christian faith, is but a blip on the radar of a billion or a trillion or an infinite number of eternity. It helps us stay sane when very difficult things are done to us. The word rest here, as I said, means permanent rest. The rod, the standard, and we might say the double standard of the wicked, shall not fall permanently upon Those who are righteous. The reason God will take care of the matter is that if he didn't take care of the matter in a judicious way, a just way eternally, the righteous would be tasked with taking care of the matter themselves. And so God says, don't put your hand to iniquity trying to resolve a problem that you really can't resolve. Can can I suggest to you, acting out against those that hate you never makes them love you. It just confirms the reason they hate you. That's exactly what this verse is telling us. God says, I will fix the problem. Now, that is insanely hard. I have, and I'm careful sharing personal stories or those things that both impress and encourage me, but... I have been dumbfounded as to how our missionaries, Matt and Delita, have handled the death of their son. Uh, Again, I'm not sure he had contempt for Jaden, but he killed him. Drunk. The police department did not properly handle the scene, it seems. And so no charges were ever given against the man. Does that sound fair to you? Yet Matt continues to trust the Lord, even though it's difficult. Jaden's birthday is in about nine days, and so it's going to be a hard month. But it's not fair! But you can't fix it. Only God can solve that problem eternally. And there's a lot of things far less significant than that that happen to us in life And instead of taking the approach of, I'm just going to trust God, as the first verse says, we try to take matters into our own hands and solve the problem ourselves. May I suggest to you, if you want triumph, you have to trust God over the trouble that's in your life. That's what he says. By the way, I will say this. Doesn't mean we're exempt from some action. He's not saying just sit there and take it, boy. But it does take the final control out of our hands. There may be some necessary things that we have to do according to the Word of God in certain situations. But the control in the matter is ultimately God's, which, by the way, is good. Because if it was left to us, we would deal with those who are attacking us in our flesh. And it is far better for us to let God deal with them in His holiness than for you to deal with them in your flesh. Triumph is ours. Through God's enabling care in verses 1, 2, and 3. 
He is our stability, He is our security, and He is our sanity in a seemingly insane world. But verses 4 and 5 teach us that God's, uh, of God's earnest compassion. This is the second layer, if you will, or the second level of hope that we have in God. He has a zeal or an earnest compassion for those who are upright, and He has a zeal and earnest hatred towards sin. He loves the sinner, but he hates sin. And we see these in these verses, and they help us. It is certainly good to know that God desires to show his love toward us. The psalmist addresses this in these final two verses. Victory is not knowing an end of hatred from the world. Rather, triumph is is knowing the fullness of God's love resting upon you. Let me say that again. Victory is not knowing an end of hatred and contempt from the world, but rather it is knowing the fullness of God's love resting upon your life. That's when you're in victory. It's not walking around saying, well, they don't hate me anymore. They're always gonna, they always hate God. And if you're going to live godly, they're not going to love you. Jesus tells us, don't be surprised about that. By the way, that knowledge of the fullness of God's love will erase all hatred from men that affects us. What do you mean, Kyle? It'll just go away. Well, no, who cares how much they hate us and what they do to us or what prison they would put us in? Go ask all of the martyrs of the Middle Ages. Go ask the modern-day Christians who were jailed for their faith in other countries. It doesn't take away the hatred, but it takes away the sting of that hatred. It's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, Grave and death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? What's the worst they can do? Kill you? He said, well, that's pretty bad. I mean, that's right up here on the list of things I don't want done to me today. I get it. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life that goes beyond this life. So the worst thing they can do is take your life? The psalmist here gives us some of the ways in which God's compassion comes to us and how it affects us. First, he says, letter A, his earnest compassion in his goodness, in verse 4. Do good O Lord. Now, isn't that a funny thing to say to God? <laughs> uh, God, uh, would you mind just doing good? Now, I don't think he's here demanding God to do it. He's basically saying, this is who you are, this is what you do, so you keep doing exactly what you do and keep being exactly who you are. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright... In their hearts. So these are attitudes and actions that he's talking about. You know, it's awful hard to worry about the contempt of other men and women towards us when we are fully aware of God's goodness to us. If you just focus on all the good things that God has, what's that old song? The old song, Count Your Many Blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. What a great hymn. What a truth. I was putting some things down on my notes as I was just coming to this point this week. God in His goodness created the world. Now stop for a second and go, uh, go away from your cynical attitude for just a moment. Well, I don't know, Kyle, this world's pretty messed up. Yes, it is. 
But where would you be had he not created the world? You wouldn't even be here to complain about it. So it is his goodness that he created the world at all. And yet sometimes we become so enthr- uh, uh, under, overwhelmed, that's the word I was hunting, uh, for, uh, at, at the problems in our life that we forget the simplest truths. And that is he is good because he created us. You are literally, I heard one guy say, the figment of God's imagination. Isn't that a great thought? That's wonderful. God thinks about me. He cares about me. The second thing I wrote down in here is God and His goodness redeems us through Jesus Christ. That's a good thing. That's a glorious thing. Do good. And when He saved you, He done good. Another one I wrote down, and God in His goodness provides all that we need for life and godliness in Christ and in His Word. There's nothing that will happen to you that you can't find a resolution to in this book. Peter says that the book contains all, or pertains all, uh, that, or excuse me, it contains all that pertains to life and godliness. There you go, I can get it out. It's been a long day of talking. What a truth! What a joy that is. The final one I put down here is God in His goodness will ultimately rid this creation of sin, evil, and wickedness. Now that's the one that we want to say, do it now. (laughs) Well, if He does it now, there's a lot of friends and family and loved ones that may spend eternity in hell. Do you want that to happen? I mean, it will someday. But in His goodness, He's even long-suffering. He's patient. He's kind and gracious. Oh, friend, if you sat down and just spent some time, you could come up with a far better list than these four, but these are just four starters to think on when we think of His goodness. When you believe in the goodness of God, one must start asking, what can man do to me? And the answer, obviously, to that question is nothing. We should remember that being a believer in Jesus Christ, the words... Then of the 23rd Psalm, in Psalm 23 and verse 6, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Back to that stability, security, and sanity. The word good that is used here actually has an understanding in our English language of benefit with the desired kindness. We use the word benevolence today. We might say this, God in His benevolence looks to benefit you every day. And if that doesn't get you going, I don't know what will. His goodness shows His compassion for us, but so too, letter B, His guardianship. At the beginning of verse 5, He says, As for such turn aside unto their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them forth with the workers of iniquity. The Lord will take care of those who separate from following God. Of course, in birth, none of us please God because by nature we are sinners in Adam. The Lord will separate those who are the chaff from those who are the wheat. He knows who who are His and He knows who are not His. The contemptuous are a devious lot. That's what the phrase crooked way means. It literally means a devious way. 
The only other time this phrase is used in the Bible is in the book of Numbers. When they could not go one way, which was straight, they had to go down another way, which literally led them back through switchbacks down the side of a mountain in their journey. And it tells us there that it was a crooked way. It literally means to deviate or deviancy. It has the idea of being perverse. He says, look, God knows who the devious are. He knows what they're doing to you. He is your guard because he is your guide. God understands that not all contempt is spoken. Sometimes even within good Christian churches and within good Christian movements, there are those who demonstrate contempt for those who are actually trying to do right. That's even okay. God will separate them out, the psalmist says. I have no doubt as Hezekiah is is writing this or if Isaiah is pinning it for him that they're thinking of some jokers within the city that were standing on the wall very seriously considering opening the gates for Rabshakeh. Of course, they didn't. And then the Syrian army returned or fled away. But I have no doubt that he's like, look, those people inside the city, they're not my problem. All I have to do is keep serving God. He will do good to me, and with my upright heart, He will honor and serve and work on my behalf. He will be good and benevolent to me, but He will guard me from all those others. And God has done that through many years in this church and in my life. And by the way, lest we get too haughty, there were probably people in my life when I wasn't living for the Lord that God guarded them for me. By the way, it's a good place to be if you think through your own life when you weren't living for the Lord, that there were friendships that ended because God was guarding them from even you and your current wickedness. His goodness and his guardianship lead directly to our final thought this evening, and that's letter C, our gladness. The last part of verse 5, he says, But peace shall be upon Israel. Peace and gladness go hand in hand in the, in the Bible. Peace means an end to hostility. Gladness is the resulting emotion that flows from peace being present. I've yet to see the end of a war where everybody on both sides says, Oh man, I'm sorry that happened. We might see it in the Ukraine war, I'm not sure. But anyway, the point is, is that I've never seen it. Right at the end of World War II, there's a ticker tape parades and the famous picture of the sailor kissing the woman, which I always hoped was his wife, there on the streets of New York City. When the war is over, gladness comes. And so what he says is, he look, if, if you take your mind off entrusting God, the contemptuous people that hate you, just like that destructive, deceiving tongue from chapter 120, or Psalm 120, I should say, When you get your mind off of that, when you get your mind off those who contemptuously hate you and you put your trust in the Lord, you're going to be glad. Boy, you will be glad for that day. If Israel is at peace, then they are a glad people indeed. And when Hezekiah is pinning this or the psalmist is pinning this song of degrees, I believe they are speaking of the gladness that was within their gates. Peace, shalom, means peace. Happiness, prosperity, and yes, gladness. We are at peace. When, excuse me, we are at peace, then we are glad too. The Psalms speak to this. Psalm 4, verses 7 and 8. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. 
for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks unto thee forever. Psalm 97 in verse 11, light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Proverbs 10 in verse 28, the hope of the righteous shall be gladness, but the expectation of the wicked shall perish. Isaiah 51 in verse 11, therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return. This is speaking of the millennial kingdom. This is speaking when Jesus is reigning on Mount Zion in his authority. They shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. What a day. What a hope. Closing trouble with someone holding you in contempt. Psalm 123. Trust in God's comfort and care for you. Psalm 124. And because of those things, you will find triumph in God's enabling care and His earnest, compassionate love for you. What a great God. What wonderful psalms. Father, help us, I pray, as we close our thoughts this evening.